Welcome back to What in the World. I am Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by Andre. Andre, what's going on with you? You are still in Sri Lanka. How's it been so far? Uh, Sri Lanka is very interesting. They put forward new health restrictions. So there's a 10 p.m. curfew now because of the big COVID situation that's been happening here. COVID's really peaking. Uh, 3,500 cases a day, maybe. We're getting closer to 200 deaths per day. And for a country that's 22 million, uh, it, is a pretty, it is a pretty big uh, rate of COVID cases and casualties and so on. But there are new health restrictions, a new curfew after 10 p.m. and so on. And there very well might be a lockdown in the country. Uh, in Sri Lanka, a lot of the politicians listen to the big Buddhist monks. Buddhist monks here have a lot of power, and two of the leading Buddhist monks have uh, written a letter to the president requesting there be a lockdown. So that'll be very interesting to experience uh, being an American in Sri Lanka for the next 10 days. So uh, I'll keep you posted on that. But otherwise, I've been at home uh, trying to get this new workout routine going on. I've lost a couple of pounds, <laughs> being healthy, uh, drinking a lot of water. And yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to take home some good habits instead instead of some extra pounds. Well, I'm happy you're finally making good on that New Year's resolution. Uh, I have yet to do so, so maybe uh, I will also join you and we'll do a virtual workout class together. Excellent, excellent. How are you doing, Ryan? Where are you? Uh, I am in New York City uh, at the moment, uh, enjoying the end of my summer. Um, that's a great question. This, you know, is not actually kind of my vacation. I am joining my girlfriend while she is at a research conference. Ah. And I am hanging out in New York City, um, which is quite lovely, actually. It's a little hot here, but, you know, I haven't been to uh, New York City in quite a while. And so it's nice to kind of see all the sights again. Um, and as we approach the anniversary of 9-11, I, I, I actually get to go to the 9-11 Museum and Memorial, which I have not done. Um, so I'm, I'm very look, much looking forward to that, uh, paying my respects and going through the museum. Um, because, you know, I have I've not been to Ground Zero um, since before uh, 9-11. And so I think, you know, it's something that uh, every American uh, should experience at least once. Yeah. I mean, speaking of hot, dude, like it's tremendously humid in Sri Lanka. There are so many mosquitoes. I think my legs have 10 or 20 bites from mosquitoes each. So I think I have a higher chance of getting dengue uh, before I leave than getting COVID having been double dosed with Pfizer. But Ryan, you know, you note the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up. We're also seeing, of course, the return to Taliban rule in Afghanistan that we've talked about time and time and time again. Uh, it's really occurred very swiftly. Last week when we spoke, I gave Kabul around two weeks before it fell. It didn't even take two weeks. It took 24 hours for it to fall from the time when we recorded it. Uh, Ashraf Ghani fled the country. The Taliban's really consolidated its rule around uh, Kabul, and it's just tremendously uh, sad, shocking, but not shocking in many ways that the Taliban was able to take the country almost completely in such a short time span, really within the last week or so, really take most of the country within that time span. Uh, we saw those terrifying images uh, of all the crowds at the airports, people literally falling from the planes as they're taking off. It's truly horrifying people. And they found, I think, human remains in that one plane that's now in that viral video of all the crowds crowding the U.S. Air Force plane. Uh, but President Biden, he's still defiant about the decision, right? 
he, I, Ryan, did you see the George Stephanopoulos interview on ABC News that President Biden uh, gave today? I saw bits and pieces of it, but I didn't see the full interview. And again, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. He uh, is kind of maintaining his ground. He's not apologizing uh, for this policy decision. Uh, and George Stephanopoulos, to his credit, really pushed back yeah. against this decision. Um, you know, it really was a great interview um, from that perspective, just because he was holding him accountable. I mean, look, in July, the president said uh, the Taliban will not take over all of Afghanistan as soon as we leave. Well, they sort of did, right? They basically took Before the entire we country. Left. They took the entire country within days of the U.S. I mean, not even officially leaving, right? Like we're in the yeah. midst of evacuating all these folks. Uh, so, I mean, now the president has sort of pivoted in this interview, and he's claiming that hey, uh, it would have been chaotic regardless of how we left. The president is not really taking too much responsibility, in my view. Uh, for the decision, he sort of called what's happening basically inevitable. Of course, I mean, 300,000 Afghan soldiers in that army, 20 years, 20 years of training them. The U.S. Army, the U.S. military, the U.S. national security apparatus was completely out of touch with how the hell Afghanistan actually operates. Tribal loyalties, cultural differences. What's happening in Afghan society? I don't think anyone bothered to understand that because I think that's fundamentally what's been going on in Afghanistan and why there really wasn't uh, too much of resistance, official resistance, with regards to the Taliban just walking into some of these cities and taking them. Yeah. So I mean, Andre, all you know, all these things that we'll certainly watch and see how the situation unfolds. But um, you know, uh, I had the opportunity to talk with Chavid, of course, our executive producer. Um, who was able to uh, provide his insights and analysis on the situation. He, of course, was the uh, senior director for counterterrorism during the Trump administration, had a long career uh, in the counterterrorism and national security space. And so uh, I, we just had a candid conversation about kind of his thoughts about the uh, terrorist threats uh, in Afghanistan with the Taliban uh, taking power again, the regional geopolitics, as well as what it is what life is going to be like likely for the Afghan people, given the, uh, the kind of taking away of their social, economic, and political rights. And so, um, Andre, without further ado, I think we'll tee it up and head over to uh, my quick convo with Javid. So, Javid, thank you so much for, for joining us today. There's a lot to talk about. I mean, Afghanistan has now fallen to the Taliban. Uh, the United States, of course, went into Afghanistan about 20 years ago, and now we are leaving. And of course, it's a rush and chaotic to kind of exfiltrate all Americans and as many Afghans as we can who have assisted the United States. But there are many difficulties that lie ahead. And you've been very active in the media lately talking about what this means uh, for Afghanistan, for the region, as well as what it means for US foreign policy. But I think, you know, it's really hard to see this as anything but a huge loss for the administration. And so, Javid, what are your kind of initial thoughts and feelings and opinions uh, about the situation we've seen unfolding? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. And always good to be with you and Andre. Um, so I would agree with a lot of what you said uh, in your tee up that this is a loss, um, whether you look at it through the lens of politics for the administration, I, I think it's more a loss for the country and regardless of who's president. Obviously, President Biden has uh, overseen the, the last round of 
of decisions that's that's led to this. But I do think this is a bigger issue. This is a loss to the country in terms of our prestige, our credibility. Clearly, has tremendous implications for the country of Afghanistan. Now has implications for regional security, um, given the sort of fragile nature of what's happening there and the chaos that has already taken place and what may ensue if the Taliban decide to revert back to the 1996 to 2001 Taliban style of rule. And then I do think there's a homeland security aspect to this, that given the fact that the Taliban is now in control of the country, or most of the country anyways, that there's still pockets that they have not yet completely uh, taken over, um, that uh, this opens the door or potentially opens the door to how could global jihadist groups like what remains of al-Qaeda, although very battered and bruised from 20 years ago, um, and, and other groups, uh, what kind of threat does this now pose to the home? It's not going to be, it's not going to manifest overnight, right? But given what we know about the history of, of transnational terrorism in Afghanistan pre-9-11, if given time and space and the ability to develop resources and capabilities, um, this is a this could be another launching pad for attacks against uh, the homeland. So those are all really important things to talk about, and nobody knows, unfortunately, what the future is going to uh, sort of bring forward, just because there's so many variables in play. And uh, now with us uh, leaving, uh, even though there will be troops remaining to facilitate the evacuations, as you mentioned, um, we're going to have very limited ability to influence events on the ground there. I mean, there's a, a, certainly a lot of challenges and you've outlined them, but I want to take this piece by piece, Javed, and I want to start with, so you actually uh, participated in this experts advisory from the University of Michigan, uh, you and some other faculty members there. And so what you said is, you know, there are three questions that you have. The first being, will the Taliban reverse the social, economic, and political gains over the past 20 years? And if you look to reporting, I saw that from CNBC this morning, uh, Thursday morning that, you know, people have been killed in and around uh, Kabul airport. Uh, since Sunday, we have beatings by Taliban fighters uh, on both, you know, women and children and also adult men. Uh, and so it seems like that in certain scenarios, of course, you know, the difficulty with the Taliban, at least in my eyes, is that the they're not acting as a government. They have to maybe relearn how to act as a government or maybe have they ever acted as a government is, I guess, the, the real question, because governance is different than being a terror organization that has power. And so uh, what do you see as far as the, the, what is your you know, kind of thoughts and prognosis as to the reversion of social, economic, and political gains? Because you know, the many of you know, maybe had this um, generous view that the Taliban might be a bit more moderate, but it seems like they have really no um, incentive to do so because the US is leaving uh, and after that, I mean, they really know when to keep them accountable. Yeah, it's a great um, question that you that you you know frame from from my comment. Um, uh, and again, this is something people are going to have to watch very closely. As I mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's the 1996 to 2001 version of Taliban rule, and that was incredibly brutal. And then it, once they lost power, they reverted back to an insurgent group using a variety of different tactics and techniques to, to you know, just maintain their, their sort of hold in, in the country and then slowly expand it. Um, 
But now that they will theoretically make this transition from insurgent group to ruling power, as you mentioned, right, nobody, it's not clear how they will govern and what their vision for the future will be. Is it a vision of the 1996, the 2001 style, or is it something that's it may not be moderate in the Western sense, but it may be more pragmatic and flexible. And I wrote an opinion piece in the Detroit News that that talked about that, that there could be strands within the Taliban leadership. And it is not a monolithic group. There's different factions. There are different leaders with different agendas and backgrounds and experiences. There's the old guard Taliban. There's the new generation Taliban. So you, I think those of us here in the United States, the West need to understand that this is not just a single group that operates robotically and they all march along the same kind of line. Um, uh, but that said, how, you know what that style of governance will look like, there could be instances that we're seeing based on the press reporting where it does look like they're reverting back to the future. But that just could be from smaller Taliban units that are operating off whatever central guidance that's been communicated. I'm not, it's not clear that they've developed a platform yet that they are then going to hold themselves accountable to. I mean, they've, they've made some comments that they're going to try to respect um, women's rights and the rights of other sort of protected people within the confines of Islamic law. Now they have a very different interpretation of that. So you know, what does that mean? Um, they said they would, uh, or they've said that, uh, you know, they want to ensure that Afghanistan remains economically viable and somewhat, uh, you know, prosperous in the future. So now that they're going to govern, they have a stake in the system. Another, when we've seen this happen in other uh, parts of the world, this is the challenge that uh, these groups that make that transition often fail and stumble and sometimes lose power because they can't govern. And it's too early again to tell how that's going to evolve. I think it's just, we're going to have to see it unfold. But if the Taliban leadership, and again, it's, it's diffuse, um, one would think that now they're, they're in control, that there's little incentive for them to act so harshly that then gets them uh, sort of blacklisted from the international community. And all the things they want to do um, externally, perhaps not internally in the country, they're going to have to rely on the international community to do that. So um, these are the trade-offs and the choices the Taliban leadership are going to have to make. So before I get to the terrorist threat or the you know prospective terrorist threat and threat of collaboration, I do want to talk about the international community because uh, in the region, it seems like Pakistan, China, Iran are all kind of vying for stronger influence in the country. And uh, now we have you know India sidelined, NATO countries sidelined. And so, I mean, that's the difficult part is the, the countries that did have a lot of influence and ability to maneuver within Afghanistan, which is a, a geostrategic country for, you know, great power competition, but also in the com and combating um, terrorism. Now it seems like, of course, you have, you know, the, the, the relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan, but also China. I think China is a very interesting country because, of course, China has economic ties uh, and it also has, you know, their own perceived threat of Uyghur um, militant groups that could potentially be empowered by the Taliban returning to power. And so they are developing the relationship with the Taliban. And, um, you know, when you have, you know, maybe the U.S. and other Western countries, you know, having levying sanctions against uh, the Taliban or not giving them access to the international financial community, um, how does China kind of play into this? Because 
I mean, China is a, a huge financial power. And if if they if the Taliban can't rely on the US, is is China the you know the the answer? And will that ensure its kind of longevity, at least in the medium term? Yeah, another really good set of questions there. And even before Kabul fell, um, over the last few weeks, and I've been, uh, as you mentioned, you know, talking to folks in the media, and this is one of the things I kept saying is that um, as as things were unfolding on the ground, and it was looking more and more realistic that there would eventually be some kind of Taliban takeover, and the, you know the timing was always difficult to predict. That, uh, and we had made the decision to you know, withdraw all combat troops by the 9/11 anniversary, and the withdrawal was was starting to happen by the summer. It was clear then that Russia, China, Pakistan, Iran, all these countries that we would view as as adversaries, um, were looking at Afghanistan as um, an opportunity, uh, either uh, to advance their national interests or to somehow make things difficult for us or some combination of the two. And so I think we're going to see that now all play out. Russia has a history with Afghanistan now like we did. I think all these countries are going to be very wary of getting involved militarily, again, unless their uh, countries or interests are attacked somehow by 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 uh, terrorist groups um, emanating from from Afghanistan. So I don't think the military option is what any of these countries are thinking about. I think it's more the political, the economic, the the kind of cultural, social. Those are all things that these other countries, all of which are not aligned with the United States, will now be looking to advance in Afghanistan. And as you mentioned, China probably um, is positioned the best because of the their ability to um, to engage in economic uh, investments and, and development projects. And there, there has long been discussion that um, Afghanistan is a uh, sort of a lucrative market for strategic minerals, not oil and gas, but other sort of strategic minerals that have been untapped because over the last you know, almost 30, 40 years, because of the security situation, that things were so dangerous that those, those opportunities really couldn't um, get off the ground. Well, now that the Taliban's in control, and if there isn't a lot of internal fighting going forward, um, that um, this may be the time for these other countries to 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 break into that market, and that could transform Afghanistan economically. So there's a lot uh, to look at from just that economic um, perspective. And then on the political side, as you mentioned, um, you know, Pakistan has long had a relationship with the Taliban, going back to its origins in the mid um, 1990s. Um, from that relationship aspect, they're probably the biggest winner because their sort of client that they had supported for the last 25 years is now taking control. And um, how Pakistan leverages the Taliban going forward in its um, uh, sort of uh, relationship with India, that's another part of this giant Rubik's Cube that will be fascinating to, to watch out. I mean, India, like the United States, like the West, is is arguably a loser in this, um, in, the, in the latest series of developments. So it's so complicated to see how things uh, are going to unfold on the sort of international relations and foreign policy and diplomacy side. But suffice to say that the paradigm of the last 20 years is changing rapidly and what it looks like for the next 10 to 20 years will be 
markedly different. Yeah, and I think you know something that is also on probably the minds of you know every national security uh, professional, both former and current, as well as you know main, many Americans, is the threat of international terrorist groups being able to operate and grow and train within Afghanistan. And so, uh, Javed, the, the Taliban have you know seemingly. Um, to, to many analysts, collaborated and supported international terrorist groups. Um, that is, you know, one of the you know primary reasons for the United States going and our NATO allies going into Afghanistan uh, in 2001. And so, uh, do you do you think that the Taliban have maybe learned from you know pre the, from history and would do their you know maybe very best to not do that in in order to not have uh, another campaign in Afghanistan or is given, you know, the goals of the group and also the, you know, need for, you know, whether it's maybe money or other resources would, you know, be a safe harbor for international terror groups once again. Yeah. And this is another really important question for people to think about and then sort of observe going forward. And um, given the Taliban's relationship with Al-Qaeda that stretches back um, literally 25 years, when Osama bin Laden came back into Afghanistan in 1996 and brought with him, uh, uh, you know, a cadre of, of uh, Arab veterans who had fought in the Afghan war in the previous um, decade, that you know that relationship goes back that long. Um, there are still ties between different individuals in the Taliban and what remains of Al Qaeda. Now, again, Al Qaeda is battered and bruised and nowhere near the organization it was even after. 9-11. And so I don't think right now that Al-Qaeda has much capability to threaten the United States. But if given the task, even the tacit support from the Taliban of just looking the other way, not saying the Taliban would give them anything, resources, money, personnel, and that didn't happen on 9-11 either. I mean, the Taliban was not involved with the 9-11 plot. They just allowed, uh, eventually allowed al-Qaeda to, to move forward with that, um, even if they thought that this could trigger some kind of military response. They probably didn't understand that the U.S. would and the West would respond the way they did. But anyway, so so that's the, the trade-off of the Taliban. You know, given its shared history, um, given even the potential uh, sort of shared uh, ideology, even though the Taliban is not a global jihadist group, um, uh, you know, what, what is the chance that an Al-Qaeda or some of these other um, groups that, that still operate on, in either Afghanistan or, or Pakistan or have the ability to cross both sides of the border, what is the chance that threat can manifest? I would say it's low now, but given time, space, um, it could grow. And that's what happened pre-9-11. So part of the deal, the the Trump administration made with the Taliban in um, the spring of 2020 was sort of a condition that the Taliban would crack down on transnational threats emanating from the country. But that that wasn't a verifiable treaty, and that wasn't something that has ironclad agreements around it. And again, how far, how how much can we trust the Taliban to? To perform that function when when we are now not going to be able to do at least in the way we were able to do it for the past 20 years i mean the administration keeps saying we're going to have an offshore offshore over the horizon counterterrorism capability and if there are those types of threats that generate out of afghanistan and we see them 
we will maintain the right and have the capability to, to take action. Um, that scenario hasn't played out yet, but the administration keeps signaling that you know there is some kind of mitigation plan in place. But there's a lot of variables um, you know in between in between that. So this is another thing that Taliban is going to have to balance going forward. Is it is all that shared history and and the personal ties and whatever you know benefits of, of the collaboration from the past? Is it worth it? Uh, sort of going forward and. Hopefully the answer to that is no, but we're just going to have to to wait and see how that plays out. Absolutely. It's definitely a waiting game uh, for at least for now. And so Java, just one more question before I let you go. Uh, you, of course, had a very long career in the U.S. government. You know, you know, many people, you have many friends and colleagues who have served or maybe are still serving. And so um, what are you hearing from the your friends and your colleagues about this decision, this withdrawal? I mean, is there you know, widespread support for the way in which this has gone down. What's kind of the temperature that you've taken? Yeah, I don't want to betray anyone's individual confidence, but the sense I get is that, um, you know, people are, are pretty frustrated. Um, and um, at least the sort of career professionals that I worked with, uh, mostly in the counterterrorism community, um, understand that, you know, the president obviously gets to make a choice and it's it's the president's decision. But that there are serious risks now on the terrorism side and that we as a country have to understand that and again have to um, build in some mitigation measures and make sure we have the right capabilities to keep the country safe so i think that's the sentiment that i've picked up from from former colleagues who are still serving well, thank you for all of that, Javed. And of course, your insights uh, and analyses are always valuable, Andre. And I really appreciate you coming on and joining us to talk about really such an important issue, just you know, not only for the United States, but also for the Afghan people uh, and their future. And so once again, Javed, thank you. All right. Thanks, Ryan. And uh, keep up the great work between you and Andre. Those were some very interesting insights, Ryan. Certainly, Javed has had a lot of experience in this domain, and he knows what he's talking about. But Ryan, I remembered what I was going to say uh, shortly before we teed it up to, for Javed's uh, conversation. Uh, again, as I said, the Taliban sort of walked into many of these cities. There wasn't too much of a defense. Uh, President Biden said in his statements that the Afghan people didn't put up a fight so how can the U.S. be expected to fight the fight for them? Uh, certainly, it is true in some respects, especially when you look at how the cities fall, have fallen. But the Afghan people have lost a lot. They have lost a lot of folks. The Afghan security forces have lost many soldiers who have fought the Taliban. When the U.S. has sort of you know, made the Afghan army reliant on certain things that the U.S. provides, like air power, intelligence sharing, for example. And when the U.S. decides to leave, one, no, no air power, right? Where are they going to get that extra support from when the Taliban's advancing? And then also, it's a huge psychological blow. It's a huge psychological blow. Like, hey, I mean, I think we did more. As someone was saying, I think some journalists or some anchors or some other people were saying, the U.S. did more, I think, to deal a psychological blow to the Afghan security forces in our in our drawdown, in our act of leaving. And as we're seeing at the airport, as the president noted, that first day of the evacuations was chaotic as hell. 
people falling under the planes, people mobbing these planes. Right now, apparently, the, the evacuations are going smoothly. We're getting people out of there. I saw a touching photo of this one girl being sort of covered by the uniform of a soldier. And I mean, I, I honestly hope that these people are able to be, we take as many of these folks as possible to the United States after Vietnam ended. Ryan, do you know how many people we took in after Vietnam? Oh my gosh, I, I, I can't even, you know, I can't remember the actual figure, but it was, I mean, in the-, the 200,000. I was going to say, in the, in the hundreds of thousands, right? I mean, and um, again, you got to remember that, you know, the US, troop, US troops were there for a very long time. And of course, our footprint there has had kind of reverberations, very negative uh, implications for the Vietnamese people. And so, again, you know, when we when we engage in these types of uh, campaigns uh, and interventions, it then becomes kind of our responsibility to then, you know, take on some of the humanitarian efforts in order to um, kind of safeguard um, and resettle some of these populations. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I don't like to get political uh, on this program as much. Uh, we try to stick to policy, but I've seen some uh, messages from some more hard right-wing conservative folks, whether they're on Fox News or elsewhere, uh, saying like, oh, we don't need these people. Why should we be taking these people in from Afghanistan? We have no obligation. We have plenty of obligation to take these people in Afghanistan because we spent 20 years in that country. And then in a bipartisan fashion, President Trump, President Biden, we have virtually abandoned Afghanistan. And trust me, Bush and Obama made plenty of mistakes in Afghanistan. This is what we're seeing in Afghanistan is a result of 20 years, the mistakes of four presidents. Really, those first three presidents made woo, some big mistakes. Biden just came onto the show and he just left. But we have an obligation to take these people in. These are family people. These are good people. These are people who want better lives. These are people who are going to work hard who are already working hard to make their living and they will, and I would be proud to call them American citizens, absolutely proud to call them American citizens. And I think it's disgusting what some of these people on, on the far right are saying about these people, when at the end of the day, many of these people were advocating for the war in Afghanistan. They were advocating for so many of these democratization things that were going on. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, that's very well said. Uh, and I mean, again, this country was... Um, you know, founded on the idea of being a, a safe haven, exactly a safe haven for refugees around the world. And again, I'm in New York City. Um, I, I can see the Statue of Liberty in the distance. And that if, if there's any symbol of how open America is to all people, uh, it is that. And so I, I can't even believe that some Americans would say that the United States is closed to particularly the people who helped American troops who helped save the lives and keep Americans safe in Afghanistan. It, it really is beyond comprehension. Absolutely. It, it's beyond comprehension. And I mean, these folks, I mean, you talk about American values, preserving American values. This is an American value. Helping the people of Afghanistan, those folks who are yearning to come to the U.S. who are going to be killed by the Taliban, we have to help them in some way, whether it's settling them in the U.S., resettling them in a third country, Whatever we do, we have to do it. And we had, a, as George W. Bush said, I mean, that guy's been responsible for some big mistakes in Afghanistan, obviously, as we all know. But cut the red tape with regards to some of this refugee resettlement. Cut the red tape. Like, 
we're processing visas. By the time we process the visas, these people might be dead and gone. So we have to make sure that we take care of these people to our utmost capabilities as a country. Otherwise, we will have abandoned American values. Absolutely. Well, uh, Andre, we are at the end of our what in the world time limit. And so um, really just, you know, again, I mean, Afghanistan is kind of the story of the day and will continue to be. And so we'll be giving you guys weekly updates as the situation unfolds, as well as other updates around the world. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, make sure to uh, subscribe, rate and review and follow us on social media at Fernbag Pod. We have an awesome episode coming out on Monday with Ronald Marks to talk about the, uh, the intelligence community and Congress, that relationship. He uh, had a very interesting career where he both served in the CIA and served as intelligence counsel on the Hill. Uh, and so, Andre, I'm, you know, it was a, an interesting conversation um, with someone who has experience that we don't really get often. And so I'm looking forward to that. And I hope you all are as well. Absolutely. And folks, uh, please listen to our episode with Daniel Levin. It's on the hot, on hostages in Syria. A great episode, a very captivating episode. So please check that out as well. All right. And with that, we'll see you all next week. See you, folks. Bye.